welcome to the fifth episode of the Invisibility Today podcast. I'm your tiny disabled host, Laura Elliott. This month, I'm very excited to introduce you to Eugene Grant, a writer and activist with dwarfism from the UK, who's here today to talk about his work with the Restricted Growth Association, representations of dwarfism in the media, and breaking down society's view of normalcy. Welcome to the show, Eugene. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. Um, so first off, I'd like to ask you a little bit about um, terminology because you've written a really great thread on Twitter about how to refer to people with dwarfism without being disrespectful and it would be good if you could recap that here to start. Uh, thank you. Well, that came about because I wrote, I wrote a post um, about the word midget, um, which is often described in dwarfism communities as the M-word, um, and word midget is, is a slur it really mm. comes from the word midge which is an insect that you can squash with your thumb it's got very strong historical connotations of the freak shows at which we were paraded and abused mm. um and it should never be used um and i wrote i wrote that post and that went viral and i had like twenty thousand likes or something but then the, the there's kind of backlash to it which is well then what what do we call people with dwarfs and uh, and that, that seems to be a sort of perennial question for average high people. It's what do we call people with dwarfs and they seem to really, really want to know. Um, and so I wrote this this Twitter thread um, about that and you know, responding to that question. And, and the, the key kind of answer is, well, their name. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you call someone with dwarfs and where their name is. And then I said, explained, like, well, if you don't know their name, why do you need to refer to their body before you know who they are? And then once you know their name, you can you can ask them how they like to be referred to. Because people have different ideas, you know. Some some people, especially in America, they like the the term little person. I personally don't like the word the term little person. It makes me feel like I've got less power than a big person, and I believe I do. Uh, some people uh, have um, call themselves you know a person of restricted growth. Um, usually, um, in all my encounters in 32 years of living. Um, I, People with dwarfism or personal dwarfism seems to be fine. Um, I sometimes use uh, dwarf person or even dwarf. Um, but the point was that you know, everyone's kind of individual and um, different. So, so ask them. And if you don't have an opportunity to ask them, then why are you referring to them by their body? Why, why are you categorizing them by their body? Why, what's so important about talking about their body when you don't know their name? Um, and then I went to bed after sending out this thread. I woke up the next morning and my phone exploded. <laughs> because, um, Chelsea Clinton, who has got like two and a half million followers or three million followers or something, I, I saw it and retweeted it. Um, and said, so, yeah, it's now went viral and that was really cool. The um, outpouring of both love and abuse was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Like, um, people came out of force saying, like, yes, this is brilliant. And there was so much, so many trolls as well. Mm-hmm. Some of whom I think were bots. They had had loads of like numbers and digits in their name and about six six friends and all their posts are about trump um, <laughs> but, uh, but others were like like kind of genuine harassment or um all people who thought they were trying to be really clever and trying to trip me up and um or explain something um uh, to me about my own life my own lived experience as someone with dwarfs which is um both frustrating and entertaining at the same time you make a really valid point about why are we discussing people's bodies before we know them because there is something weirdly voyeuristic about that I think mm-hmm. um do you think that's a problem with the fact that I suppose most people don't really meet someone with dwarfism or don't know people 
uh, very well with dwarfism and also they don't see it represented very well in the media do you think there's just a little bit of ignorance around it i think there are kind of three things i always will break it down into three in a way one one is curiosity genuine curiosity um and that comes from as you say, you know, not meeting many people with dwarfs and um, most average type people meet very few, if any, people with dwarfs in real life. Um, I, I uh, volunteer at a charity called RGA UK, it's a leading campaign charity for people with dwarfs. And when I talk to parents, I say, you know, when was the first time you met someone with dwarfs? And they say, my child. You know, they're either 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, you know. Um, and so the people are genuinely curious because they don't have the chance to meet any people with dwarfs. That's the first category. The second category are people who are ignorant. Now, ignorance is, in its literal sense, not knowing, did not know. Um, and that's fine. I mean, there's tons of stuff that I don't know about <laughs> and you don't know about and everyone doesn't know about and that's absolutely fine. Um, uh, and then the third category, which I put down as malice or malicious, where people either don't know and don't care or they just don't care um, and, uh, and are kind of hurtful and disrespectful and rude. And um, you know, a lot of them are the ones who... When you tell them that you know the word midget or the M word is, is is deeply offensive, they'll want to continue using it. Though you've told them, so so ignorance would be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that word was offensive. I, I never knew that. Cool, that's ignorance. You didn't know. And then uh, malice would be continuing to use that after you've been told by somebody whom that affects. Absolutely, it's. I mean, those people can be broadly categorized as assholes. I think. Um, Absolutely. But, but yes, I, I think you're much more eloquent in <laughs> describing that. Um, do you encounter that day to day outside of the Internet out of curiosity? Is this because it's obviously e extreme examples online, isn't it? It can be. It can be. So, I mean, if we go back to those three categories, the ones that you really encounter are um, number one and number three. So, uh, you know, you, you won't know if someone's ignorant about dwarfs unless they do something to make you aware of that. <laughs> Um, they might just not know. Um, and they'll be the odd person who's sort of staring at you, and as soon as you look at them, they drop their gaze or go back to their phone, or, or they know what they're doing is rude, and they're just curious. Um, you get lots of kids, lots of very curious kids. I recently wrote a Twitter post, a Twitter thread, about um, sort of advising average height um, parents on what to do the first time their little kid says, you know, Mummy, look at that boy, he's got a beard. Or, don't look at that small lady. Or, you know, because kids are little kids are little kids and they're curious and they want to know about the world. And so you, you encounter that a lot. And then you do encounter, sadly, you encounter um, some people who are malicious. And um, and that's, it's. I'm not going to say it's common because um, I don't want to, and the difficulty of, you know, not wanting to scare people. But, you know, there, there are academic studies that showed, um, academic studies of people, done with people with dwarfs. And, and this study shows that um, you know, nearly 80% of us have experienced verbal abuse, about two thirds of people sometimes felt unsafe going out, 12% have experienced physical violence. Um, and so the, the statistics are there and, and lived experience is there. And so you do encounter um, malice in, in everyday life. And that can be from comments, that can be from being filmed, that can be you know, filmed on camera phones. Camera phones are absolute bane of my life. Um, that can be even violence uh, on very, very rare occasions, you know. So that does kind of that does exist in real life, yeah. There's such a level of invasion of privacy. Obviously, the violence is 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 a terrible thing in and of itself, and like you say, quite an extreme example, although it does happen. But the idea that people would just start filming random strangers on the street is is really quite a horrifying invasion of privacy. It's horrible. You never get used to it. You never ever get used to it. Um, 
and you know when that happens your kind of your adrenaline rockets you don't know what's going to happen to that photo you don't know where it's going to go you don't know in terms of social media you don't know the words that can be used to describe your body because that's what's happened they've, they've these people have seen that body like a dwarf or a disabled body and they want a record of it they think that's spectacle enough to have a record of it and they want that record to remind themselves that they think that, that they think they themselves are normal um, and they use a dwarf and disabled body to sort of reassure themselves of their own normality. Um, but you don't know what's going to happen to that photo, you know. Yeah. Where's it going to go? What, Facebook? Twitter? Snapchat? You know, who, who else is going to laugh at that? It's also, it's, it's also like being... It's like being famous without any of the perks or without choosing yeah. it. This probably ties in as well with... Um, you said you worked with um, the, the Restricted Growth Association. You work a lot with kids, am I right? I do quite a bit with kids, so um, we we do various things. We're, we're a volunteer-led um, uh, charity. Uh, our, we campaign fearlessly for equality for people with dwarfism and their families. So we often get involved when um, there's uh, been kind of quite disgraceful things that happen, even in the media and real life. Um, so to give you an example, a couple of years ago we heard that a nightclub. Um, called, I think it was in Manchester, called the Oxford Nightclub, was offering punters um, uh, a sort of VIP booth with, and I quote, a free midget to dance on demand and serve drinks, end quote. Um, and this we just thought was disgraceful, as did many other people. And so um, we, we led a campaign against it. We had the petition. Um, we uh, unfortunately didn't get the, kind of the night clothes down like we wanted to, or at least uh, for them to drop this kind of aspect of that night um but we got you know blanket uh, mainstream media coverage and even like the sun and tabloids were kind of generally sort of supportive or um like in their coverage of us um so we do campaigns like that we had a really great campaign about a year ago i think in which um we were campaigning for um li- libraries to stock um the very few books that uh, portray people with dwarfism in a really positive light neither mm. children's books so there's um strong and mighty max and we are giants which are two excellent children's books and so what we did is we found we were encouraging people to um to email their local library we had a template email that they could use and get these books ordered in um and we had some nice media coverage about that as well and and, and then and then what was really lovely is that people um in the community in the dwarfism community then started started adding their own their own books to the list and the list kind of grew as the campaign went on and that was really cool as well and um, so we do that kind of thing and um, we also do events as well we have a sort of annual convention we call it a mega weekend because to word convention is a bit dry <laughs> um we do that every year and that's like a three-day weekend of um, you know, specialist medical workshops we have workshops where you can learn to alter your own clothes with lots of stuff for kids from you know, skateboarding to laser quest to um sort of informed kind of mentoring we have um i do a talk on dwarfism and identity throughout history and culture um lots and lots of things like that we have a big kind of gala dinner and um yeah, and, and growing up as a kid, I used to go to these. My mum used to take me, and my mum and dad used to take me, and it was one of the highlights of my year. Um, so we run that, and we also run a Young People's Weekend, which is just for our young people in the community, and we do all kinds of team-building activities and uh, confidence-building um, activities as well. That's amazing. And you're fundraising at the moment too, if I'm not incorrect, for the weekend with the kids, aren't you? Is that the same 
thing that I'm thinking that's, of. That's right. That's absolutely right. So, um, so uh, for the last few years, we've been extremely lucky in that we've been um, uh, successful in our applications for children who need funding. Um, sadly, this year we were not successful. Um, so what we're trying to do is um, every every the times that we've got that funding we put it to cover the costs of kids attending these events because these events cost i mean you have we hire out a hotel um, exclusively so it's a safe space so you don't worry about you know any sort of stag dues coming in that weekend or anything like that we have to you know, pay expenses of people who come to do the workshops and it, it all costs money and we try to stop putting that cost back onto the community but sadly this year we haven't got the funding from children in need so we're trying to crowdfund the difference um, uh, to cover the costs of kids coming to these events because it's just so important that kids with autism who might be struggling at school or might be trying to find their place in the world or might feel like they have to try twice as hard to be just as good as their average height peers um, that they that they can have access to a community where their friends and you know almost family so to speak look like them and and they kind of can create a bond with them and, and they can use that as a foundation for their own identity um it's really really important so that's what we're crowdfunding at the moment so it's on it's on gofundme um at um helping kids in the dwarfism community i think that's uh I think that's the line on, on GoFundMe at the moment brilliant well i'll add the link when when i post up the podcast i'll add the Thanks. link onto it as well uh, oh you're very welcome it's it is so important because it's i mean growing up's hard enough as it is and if as an adult you experience so many things like people filming you i can't imagine that kids who who don't have friends who can relate to them in the same way feel if they encounter that kind of thing at school as well and kids don't question that as much as adults i don't think either you just you meet a person you meet another child you don't meet a child with dwarfism when you're the same age if that makes sense yeah, absolutely. Um, or, or if you do, kids get used to it very, very, very quickly. Um, and that's one of the, the interesting things, you know, when when, when I meet very curious kids out, out and about, little kids, and they often, you know, are sort of exploding with curiosity and dying to talk to me and, and shout out how I look strange and different. And then you talk to them and 30 seconds later, they're bored. And they're, <laughs> you know, they're talking about dragons or something cool like that. Um, because you can't, you know, not even a dwarf body can compete with dragons. <laughs> yeah, they just, get, they just move on really quickly. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, but actually, I was reading, you shared an article earlier today by Sinead Burke. Um, and she was talking about the same thing, about um, how as a school teacher, the kids ask the questions and then it's out the way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, this is the thing. Um, so on that post I mentioned about um, uh, advising parents on what to do when their kid reacts to seeing someone with dwarfism, is uh, one of the things that parents do frequently, which they shouldn't do, is tell their kid to shh. And then what that does is that you know that 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 curiosity that doesn't go away. That you know they don't stop being curious just because you told them to shush. Um, it's all it does is just make them think, wow, this is taboo. Why can't I talk about this? Why is no one talking about this? This is weird. <laughs> um, and then from that you bring in kind of sowing the seeds of sort of doubt and the idea that this is something strange and this is something awkward and no one wants to talk about it. Mm. Whereas if you sort of meet that curiosity head on, then then you're engaging with it and you're allowing them to get those questions out of the way. And then also what's really important is that if you um, then turn that into an opportunity to teach children that A, um, uh, everyone is different in some way. Obviously some differences are bigger than others, but everyone is different in some way. And this is always what I explain to kids when I talk to kids. And, and uh, B, um, difference is a good thing. 
you know, if we were all the same, it would be really, really boring and really dull. And they, they always agree with that. And then you get them to see how they're different compared to other people, how different they are to their dad or their mum or whoever they're with. And, and just to understand that, you know, we're all different rather than you're normal and I'm different, which is what I try and break down. Yeah. It sounds like Sinead's doing the same thing, you know, the teacher. Yeah, completely. And it is it's strange because it's this idea of normal that's pervasive, but actually it, it doesn't exist. There's no... And, and kids get that better than adults do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well it's because we're kind of drip-fed this, this idea of normalcy and, you know, normal bodies and normal standards of beauty. And um, and so, you know, by the time you've been drip-fed that for 30 years, it's quite hard to rewire, whereas kids are much more malleable, much more accepting and much more curious. Um, but I have to say, though, the kids do also mirror their parents. So it's always... it's it's. You can see, you can sometimes see when you encounter curious kids out and about, you know, where they're going to go in terms of their understanding of difference, autism, disability, what have you, depending on the parents, you know. I've met parents who've been wonderful and who said, you know, oh, would you mind just talking to my kid about, you know, why you're, why you're different um, and really embracing that full on. And I've seen other parents who've uh, filmed me, who've laughed at me, who've pointed at me, who've got their kids to point at me, um, who've who've got their kids to follow them as they've been filming me. Um, and you just shudder to think what these kids are going to grow up with in terms of their ideas and understanding of, you know, difference. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely, because to, to those kids, if, if mum and dad are doing that, then that's a completely acceptable thing to do, isn't it, as far absolutely. as they're concerned? Yeah, I think as adults, these people should obviously know a lot better. And again, like I said, they can broadly be termed arseholes. But do you think um, representations in the media have a hand in this kind of infantilization of dwarf bodies? Massively, massively. I, I think uh, the media's got a huge, huge part to play in this. Um, um, and it's been happening for a very long time. And so, you know, you can go back from something like Snow White, which is, you know, one of Disney's best-selling films, to the fact that you've got, you know, seven white dwarf men who live in the woods um, who are all sort of so one-dimensional they can be summed up by a single name, like Dopey. Only one of them is clever, by the way. That's Doc. You know, obviously he's the smart one, as, as his name suggests. Um, you add that to, you know... Uh, a few years down the line, you've got The Wizard of Oz, um, and you've got um, Charlie and Chocolate Fac- Factory and Oompa Loompas. Um, a few years later, you've got Austin Powers and Mini-Me, and you know, Vern Troy sadly passed away earlier this year. Um, but that was awful, awful depictions, and you know, the, the sort of, not even normalisation, but glamorisation, if that's the word, of, of violence towards dwarf bodies. And that was then replicated again in um, Wolf of Wall Street, you know. There is, there is, um, representation is getting better in many, many ways. That's that's true. And there, there are, you know, um, actors like Meredith Eaton, um, who's doing fantastic work in America, um, in, at MacGyver. Um, there's Lisa Hammond here in the UK, Peter Dinklage in Tyrion. Everyone knows about him. Uh, but then what's funny is that I often get in these kind of discussions with people um, where it's almost like now, you know, dwarf people now have, now have Game of Thrones. And so that, that compensates for all that's gone on in the past, and it doesn't, you know. It's like, oh, you've got Tyrion now, everything's fine. Yeah. It's like, well, not really. And he's also still lecturous and sort of drunk and a womanizer, um, all of which are kind of semi-stereotypes of, dwarf, of dwarfism. He's, you know, white, 
uh, straight and male. Um, so, you know, still not that diverse, really, if you think of the whole spectrum of the dwarfs in the community. Um, so in many ways, representation is getting better. But then, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, um, how much money did that make? That was only a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was thinking Wolf of Wall Street when I asked the question, because I think that's the most recent example I can remember that, that did incredibly well at the box office, where it was a really terrible depiction. Yeah, I mean, I haven't yet seen. I haven't yet seen Greatest Showman. I've got oh, I haven't either. about this um, and P.T. Barnum, who's kind of exploiting dwarf children, and um, from the history books that I've read. So I haven't yet seen the film, but I think I need a a strong drink and um and a Twitter account when I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very fair. You did mention Peter Dinklage, and I, I absolutely take your points about him still being, you know, white, straight, male, and as you say, uh, very much of a lech. But what's interesting when people talk about um, Peter Dinklage being, you know, all things are better now because Peter Dinklage is a success. Whenever I've read interviews with him, because I think I saw him in The Station Agent before I saw him in Game of Thrones, he he had to fight through so much rubbish to be cast in serious roles and that's incredibly recent so if this fantastic actor with a lot of a lot to him is still having to you know turn down leprechaun roles to be taken seriously then that's not that great a progress surely i think the same is true of um lisa hammond um she's she she until recently played uh, donna in eastenders mm. um you know, one of the most popular sitcoms in the uk sitcoms soap operas soap <laughs> operas um and um, she she um, was quoted in an article by Tom Shakespeare in the Telegraph, in which she describes about how how kind of difficult it is to how how sort of many offers you get for for this kind of work, this sort of degrading work. And she she's got a great name for people who are engaged in this sort of degrading roles, and she calls them warm props, which I think is quite funny. Um, but she, she does, she's um, superb as well, and Lisa Hammond. So people should check her out definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually haven't watched her in anything, so I will have to go away and do that. So we were talking about um, depictions of positive depictions of people with dwarfism, and um, you wrote a brilliant article a little while ago about um, an, an historical figure called Benjamin Lay, who was an incredible man. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Absolutely. So uh, Benjamin Lay, I haven't got the, the dates at the top of my mind. I need to look it up. Um, he was a one of the he was basically one of the first white radical abolitionists um, uh, in in America. Um, he was he was born in England, but then went to um, Pennsylvania. Um, and he he was a Quaker and he had dwarfism. Um, and he really kind of helped uh, push the Quaker movement towards um, abolitionism. And it's a superb book. I mean, it's, it's much much better than anything I can tell you in this podcast, but. There's a superb book by Marcus Redeker called The Fearless um, Benjamin Lay. I think it was out late last year. Um, and it's absolutely brilliant. And it tells the story of this man's life and how his dwarfism kind of fueled his abolitionist views. Um, and he would hold these sort of spectacular uh, protests in which um, he'd go to these Quaker meetings in which Quakers were slave owners that some of these people he was confronting. Um, and uh, in one particular protest, he'd hidden like a, a bladder of berry juice in a hollowed out Bible. And he stabs this Bible um, with his knife and the Bible starts bleeding. Wow. Um, all in this very spectacular protest against um, these Quakers who were slave owners. And because he was a dwarf, you know, he, he was um, often picked up and thrown outside um, uh, of these meetings.
meetings and then he would lie down on the ground outside to make people step over him to continue his protest um, and uh, he, his fire towards that goal was very much fueled by his own experiences as a dwarf person and his wife was a dwarf person as well um, and the Quakers actually kind of um, ostracised him they, they denied his marriage certificate they, um, they he was buried in an unmarked grave which um, since um, Redeker's book I believe since his book has come out, um, they've now they've now put a stone on on his grave where he lies buried in recognition of all that he did. Um, but what's really interesting as well in in Marcus Redeker's book is that he notes where other historians have dismissed Benjamin Lay because he had dwarfism, and he quotes these historians you know, dismissing him as and I quote a little hunchback end quote. Um, and so Redeker's book was you know really kind of groundbreaking in the sense that there, there were a few little snippets of information here and there I think but nothing quite as comprehensive as what Redeker's done um, uh, and it's just fantastic because you know these represent you see how, how many people know about Mini-Me yeah? or, or, or the Seven Dwarfs how many people know about Benjamin Lay one of the first white radical abolitionists surely that's your that's your benchmark that's your model you know everyone should know about this guy absolutely um, and that's the film i want to see i'd rather see that film than well than anything with mini me in it 100 percent, 100 percent, absolutely i mean one of the things i'd like to, to to start work on in my mind is a is a children's book um uh, I've, I'm lucky enough to have a literary agent and we're working on a different project at the moment but mm-hmm. in the back of my mind I want to try and um, get a children's book about him because he, you know, people should be introduced to him he's a, he's a role model, he's a figurehead Absolutely, and it, it goes back to that idea about who, who gets to write the history and who benefits from the history there's so many people who are disabled and so many people like you say people who have dwarfism get erased from history or dismissed because the people who are writing the books don't look like them absolutely absolutely i mean that's what going back to rga and rga and rga's work one of the projects that we run is called uh, role models in the dwarfism community mm-hmm. because uh, i think studies show that um people with dwarfism often are subjected to sort of cultural low expectations in terms of what they can achieve um and there, there are study the study shows where people have been told you know sort of deterred for not even becoming you know like nba all-stars or pilots but becoming you know teaching assistants and, and, and very very sort of attainable roles and so what rj does one of our projects is to really showcase figureheads and role models in the community who've done amazing things and we have you know professors on this list we have artists academics filmmakers um we have the director for disability for american progress center for american progress i think it is um rebecca cunkley who worked with uh, barack obama yeah um, i follow her on twitter she's brilliant yeah she's amazing she's absolutely amazing so yeah all of your listeners should go and check out Rebecca Coakley and especially her article. She's absolutely superb, um, a real role model. Um, and, and so we've got this kind of list of um, of, uh, of role models that, and we try and promote that in our in our in the community so kids and parents as well can see these can figureheads and what they've achieved. Um, and they always have really great nuggets of advice as well. Uh, and so that's one of the things that we try and promote. So, what are some of the ways in which you would like to see society become more accepting of people with different bodies? That's a great question. I, I think I would, it's the same thing that I think I teach small children when I encounter them out and about in the street. It's the idea that difference is a good thing and that we're all different. And, and that sounds very obvious and very nebulous. So what do I mean by that? I think the way 
bodies are portrayed and normal bodies are portrayed is ubiquitous and insidious and so from you turn on from turning on the tv to the kind of billboards that you'll get at the tube to the magazines you can buy from the shop to the films there's a certain type of body that's that sort of glamorized and and and, and portrayed and sought after and on the other side it's presented almost as a spectrum you know one side you've got kind of beach body ready whatever that means <laughs> six packs and, and they're nearly all white and they're nearly all average height and they're but they all look a certain way. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of, and this, this spectrum is created, it's a social construct, you know. Um, on the other side of that spectrum, you have you know, dwarf bodies, disabled bodies, um, you have extremely overweight bodies. You've got, kind of, I think, I think it's Roxanne Gay, the writer who, who calls it deviant bodies um, or unruly bodies. And so just that kind of breaking away from from this idea of normalcy because one of the things I, I i i don't like is when people say oh you're just like everybody else I'm like well no i'm not I, i'm not like everybody else and what does everybody else mean you know what what does that mean that, that just that's almost like you've given me permission to join your gang <laughs> rather than rather than actually we're all different in some way um, and whether that could be sort of um, mentally or sort of neurodivergent or you know trans or or, or lgbt or, or or whatever and um, people are so different in so many wonderful ways and that should really be embraced where as opposed to this idea of, sort of normalcy i'm really carving this it's a good job it's pre-recorded <laughs> i think i understand what you're trying to say but the the idea of normalcy at one end and a fetishization of anything that's deviant at the other yes absolutely it's where something different is no longer treated as other Mm. Because the realization that we're all different means that there are no others. Yeah. So, so often, I, one of the depressing things that I subject myself to is I read a lot of dwarfs in history, and I kind of create my own library of. And there's actually not not that very many books, you know. I'm trying to. They're bought. I've probably bought about half of them, and they're still filling up only one shelf. Um, but one of the things that's so depressing when you read some, not all, some of these books is you realize that the authors even though they've taken the efforts to research this subject and write about it, still clearly don't view their subjects as the same as them. They clearly still view them as others. You know, it's from the expression of their, the descriptions of their bodies to the language that they use, just to the sense that you get, you know. Well, I, I read a, um, a biography of um, Jeffrey Hudson, who was a famous sort of court dwarf, so and in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, um, monarchs in, in Russia and Europe um, would, would, would keep, literally keep dwarf people as pets. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, 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 like a sort of glamorous slave in a way. It's not a slave in, in the sense of kind of slave labour or used to any sort of labour, but a slave in the sense that you're you're not exactly there of your own free will or you were taken as a child and so brought up there and it's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome in that way. But no, 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 they were, they were, they were kept and traded as pets. And there's a, a long history about this you can read. And, and even in, in this book, for example, the, the way a lot of it is written is, is through the eyes of the Queen who keeps Geoffrey mm. rather than Geoffrey, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so it's just that, that's only one example. I can give you plenty of others where even though they're kind of writing about this subject, they still clearly view them as an other. Now, that's not to single out this author, but it just shows the kind of barrier, the sort of them and us barrier that I'm talking about. As if you break down standards of normalcy, there is no them and us. It's only us yeah. in all its diversity, in all its difference, in all its beauty, um, in all its deviance. In fact, there's probably no deviance because you haven't got a standard of normal to deviate from.
Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say you can't be deviant if there's no norm. And exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important. I think it's it's not just important for people with dwarfism. It's important, as you say, for disabled people, for anyone who isn't defined by a white, straight, beach body ready magazine. I find it really interesting all the history you've been talking about because I haven't heard much about the history of people with dwarfism and I I consider myself fairly interested as part of the disabled community and just as a curious person. Um, so the fact that I learn new things every day by following you, by following Rebecca Coakley and people like that is amazing to me because it, it, it's very telling what's mainstream and what isn't as soon as you start to hear about it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, for me as well, one of the things about uh, studying dwarfism history is that it contextualises, you know, uh, at the beginning of this um, podcast, I, I told you about these studies where, you know, people experience verbal abuse or physical abuse or, or um, those kind of experiences. And then if you begin to read back into the history books, you realise that this is not new. This has been happening for thousands of years. This goes back to the Romans, you know, goes back to the I would say the Egyptians, but actually in ancient Egypt we were gods. So, uh, not quite, not not quite the Egyptians. Maybe the Romans, where we were sort of forced to fight each other for entertainment, um, uh, where we kind of kept as pets, killed sometimes, um, all all the way throughout history, you know, to the modern day. And you realise that these kind of experiences have a long, long history to it. You know. So if people were wanting to um, find out more about um, the history of people with dwarfism, where would you advise them to start looking? The, the, well, sadly, there hasn't been that much that's been published recently, which is quite sad and also makes um, buying dwarfism history books a bit expensive. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, if they really wanted to, the best, the best book out there, to my knowledge, that I've read is a book by Betty Adelson called The Lives of Dwarfs. Um, I think it's 2005, and you can get it on Amazon, and it's very, very good. So I definitely recommend reading that. Or oh, there's um, The Fearless Benjamin Lay by Marcus Redeker. That was out last year. That's an excellent book as well. That's really, really good. Um, there are various other ones. That kind of, I've got a sort of B-list, which is, which is which are quite good, um, but also need to be taken with a pinch of salt in some ways. Um, so the book called... Um, uh, it used to be called Giants, but I think it's now called In Our Hearts We, Are, we Were Giants. And that's about a family of um, Jews who had dwarfs and who um, were nearly all killed in um, Auschwitz. Um, uh, but one of them, Perla Ovitz, survived. And this is her story. And she's an incredible woman. And when you read this story and you just see her kind of fire and her defiance and her spirit, and she's just absolutely amazing. Um, some of the kind of the writing as much to be desired you know so even in this book for example there are references to um random references to snow white um mm. which is uh, just totally gratuitous and insulting it's just because there were seven of these um these people with dwarfism who, were, who ended up in this concentration camp um and so the authors just thought you know snow white would be a good reference wow um, but the the, the story the kind of biographical story of Pala Ovitz is incredible um so that's that's really worth reading um there are great articles if anyone is listening to this podcast and it's got google in front of them if you google you know Rebecca Coakley um Cara Reedy John Young is a marathon runner um he's um, I think he's the first dwarf person to um complete a triathlon as well wow Ironman triathlon Sinead Burke excellent um there's a, a wonderful artist and academic called Dr. Deborah Keenahan, and you can see her, her work. She's got a, a great um, essay called um, Beauty in the Dwarf Body, 
um, for the conversation, which is a media outlet, and she's also you can see pictures of um, she's got a wonderful marble statue that she's made called the Condescension, and it's of her put up high, so I think it's like seven feet high or so, um, and then she's doing what so many average high people do to us, which is where they put their hands on their knees and bend forwards into your face like you're a child, and she's got her body up on a plinth doing that back over average white people it's absolutely wonderful it's great that's um, amazing Deborah Keenan she's she's great as well uh, Tom Shakespeare um he's he's written a lot he's got a brilliant article um a called um Dwarf stop demeaning themselves and that's for the telegraph and he's also got a brilliant article um on on Jeffrey Hudson who I mentioned earlier for the Royal Academy so if you google him you'll find a lot of material there Amazing. Now, before before we wrap up the interview, I have to give you the opportunity to shout out to any of your own work that you would like people to read and to look out for as well. Um, if, if people have been interested in what I've been saying, I'm on Twitter at um, Mr Eugene Grant, um, and there's some links to some of the stuff that I've written in my bio there, and I do Twitter threads as well um, from time to time, and also post quite regularly about my experiences of life in a dwarf body. I'm working on a book at the moment with my agent, which is uh, we're kind of just going out now to um to publishers with a proposal for the book, um, and we're really really excited about it. It's a it's about life in a dwarf body. It's a series of letters to my future child who will probably have dwarfism, um, to mark various stages in their life, like the first time they realise they're different, the first time they try out for a school sports team, the first time they think they're um, falling in love. But this is still it's still in early stages, and we're still kind of trying to pitch it to publishers and see if anyone will buy. It. But uh, yeah, that's amazing. It's exciting. That's really exciting, and I hope a publisher does bite because I would love to read it. A huge thank you to Eugene for being such a great guest, and I hope you're all rushing out to follow him on Twitter and learn some more from the books and people he mentioned. Now we come to our final section of the show, and this month we're shining some visibility on one or two of the disabled and chronically ill creators and fundraisers you might be interested in lending your support to. In literary and writing visibility, you can now pre-order Resistance and Hope, Essays by Disabled People, which has been edited by Alice Wong, the brilliant founder and director of the Disability Visibility Project in the States. The ebook will feature 16 essays by 17 disabled writers, activists and artists on the relationship between resistance and hope, as the title suggests. You can pre-order it on Amazon now before its release in October this year. And in fundraising visibility, as Eugene mentioned, the Restricted Growth Association UK are crowdfunding the cost of bringing together people with dwarfism and their families for their annual Mega Weekend. The link to donate is at www.gofundme.com forward slash help kids in the dwarfism community. So if you have a bit of cash going spare, consider heading over and supporting them. For now, though, we've reached the end of the fifth Invisibility podcast, and I promise I will get the next one out on time. If there's a disability topic, activist, creator or news story you'd like to see featured here next month, you can contact me on Twitter at at visibilitytoday or email visibilitytoday at gmail.com. For now, thanks for listening and I'll see you at the end of August for another look at what's invisibility then.